What's going on, guys? This is Travis, and welcome to the podcast where we discuss caring for the fatherless, being a father, growing as a father, and God as a father. If you missed last week's episode, I had my friend Diane Mattione on the show, and uh, we were talking about her experience with raising a special needs child and her current ministry working with special needs adults and children. Uh, It was a wonderful episode. We got to hear her heart and uh, things God had grown in her own heart as well as hearing how these children are actually impacting the body of Christ and actually have something to give to the body of Christ. And it it was a wonderful show. So check that out if you get an opportunity. In today's episode, I'm going to have my friend Amber Helms. She's the director of Orphan Justice Center. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what we do with Orphan Justice Center and mainly focusing on outreach and training in that aspect of what we do. Um, Amber, if you could please just Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do with Orphan Justice Center, and and how you actually got a heart for this ministry. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, like Travis said, I am the director of Orphan Justice Center. I originally started working with this organization about six and a half years ago. I was the director of restoration and then the director of training and mobilization. And my heart for this really was developed in college. Over 10, 13 years ago, I remember sitting in my dorm room in the evenings and thinking about what was going on around the world. I'm sitting here in Minnesota at a Bible college, and I had this picture of an orphan, and I would look at him, and I would sit and pray and say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And back then, it was very trendy to know exactly what your calling was and where you were called to. So I was always trying to get a calling to the orphan. And so I would literally rock and pray and ask Jesus to break my heart. And I remember one night going through the scriptures and realizing James 127, that we are called to visit the orphan in their distress. And I was immediately struck like, oh my goodness, I don't need the tears. I don't need the um, spiritual experience, but from the word of God, I am called to the orphan and I can do this with my life. So I began working with Africa, Sierra Leone, a small country in West Africa, and had gone out there during summers. Um Back in my early 20s, we ended up purchasing 10 acres of land uh, to build a children's home on, and we wanted to obviously reach the kids in that area. And while we were there, I was praying, and I was reading the book of Mark, and um, I remember looking out over the red soil, the streets, and thinking, wow, like I can't believe I'm going to be able to impact Africa for Jesus and bring the orphans into his family, into the Lord's family. and The Lord said, and it was just this small encounter with him, and he said, look at the children in your own backyard. And I remember being so thrown off because this was not the direction my life was going to go. I was planning on moving around the world and building orphanages for the kingdom of heaven. And then he says to go in my own backyard. So I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm thinking, okay, there's not much going on in my own backyard. So I came back to America Recently after that, I moved to Kansas City to the International House of Prayer, and I began to cry out for this this burden on my heart, for justice, for children. And I began to study, really. I began to train and understand, oh, the orphans in my own backyard are in foster care. And if you rip that label off, underneath you see abused and oppressed, afflicted children. And I realized, oh, they really are in my own backyard. And so my heart turned to 
the nations, but my nation. And starting here, the Lord has grown and developed my heart in the Word of God and also in current research and trauma-informed perspectives and the the mixture of all of these together to where I am today. And it's my honor and privilege to be able to work with a group of people going after the Lord's heart in this. Thank you. And, you know, even, even in my own experience, I can think when I first started working with the Orphan Justice Center, um, I wasn't aware of all the residential facilities and all the kids that were being housed that weren't in families. We think that kids are in foster care, they're placed in homes. Um, and there's way more going on in our own backyard than a lot of people are even aware of. What, um, what is the current statistics of fatherlessness in America? So sociologists are calling this generation the fatherless generation. Um, and that probably comes from, I was just looking at the stats today, in 1960, 8% of children in America were fatherless. And you fast forward now to 2017, what is that, 57 years? 57 years later, we are up to over 43% of the children in America are living and growing up in fatherless homes. And you see the impact of that all in society. I mean, there was a decline of marriages in the 80s and 90s, and we have not yet seen what the impact of that is on two generations of children growing up under that burden. But some of the stats that are coming out are related to homelessness and youth suicides and behavioral disorders coming from a disproportionate number of those coming from fatherless homes. So you see the linkage. The sociologists are calling it the father factor. When there's a missing father factor, these other things go up. And it obviously impacts foster care and the children that are coming into foster care, um, many of which are children of single parents or single moms. You see it impacting the prison systems. 85% of youth in prison grew up in fatherless homes, which is 20 times the average. And so um, the stats go on and on, but that father factor is the common denominator. So what about in the foster care system? So with, with this happening right now, this trend, the fatherless generation, uh, it's like an epidemic. How is it impacting foster care as far as is it increasing the number of kids coming into foster care? Or are the numbers decreasing in America with kids in foster care each year? So the number of kids in foster care is increasing. Um, I was looking at numbers from Kansas. We're in Missouri, but state line is just a few minutes away from us. And they went. They have increased, I think, 1,700 children in the last couple of years. And so the, the re, they're researching why, why are these numbers increasing in already stretched thin system that can barely resource the families that are coming in now has increased 1,700 in the last five years. And um, the main reason there's a they call it the trifecta of child welfare. The reason that children are coming into foster care are because of parental substance abuse, mental illness, and domestic violence. And so obviously that's a breakdown of the family. Um, and also you see the coping mechanisms of drugs and meth and opiates. It's an epidemic right now in Kansas. The numbers are shooting up. The kids are getting taken from the home. And um, and we're feeling that burden. The church even is looking. There are 2,800 homes in Kansas, foster homes, that are taking in children, and there are 7,000 children who need a home. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a huge, uh, huge number difference. Mm -hmm. um, so these kids that need a home, where are they at? So in the foster care system, 
children will most likely be put with a foster family. So that's the goal. A family will hold them, temporarily care for them. Um, But obviously, there's a gap in the numbers. So when this gap happens, the kids go to residential facilities, which is an institution. Um, They get put in homeless shelters. They go back to the place of their abuse because there's no families for them. So sometimes they don't even open a case on them. Um, They can be on the streets. And um, even there's lots of accounts of children having to spend the night in social service offices because there's literally nowhere for them to go. Yeah, I can even, um, just working at Spofford, and even the last last year, there's a really tragic story of of a child who was actually at Spofford. And uh, he got sent back home and was missing for several months and then come to find out that the father who he went back home to had murdered him. And um, the reasoning for that is mostly because the system just can't handle the number of kids and they need to put the kids somewhere. And so as more kids are coming in, these kids are needing a safe place and there's just not room for them. Yeah, there's literally no place for some of these children to go. And so Social services arms are tied behind their back, and we are saying, church, wake up, rise. These are your kids, and we are to be the refuge for the oppressed, the afflicted, the fatherless. And so we see that disparity, and, you know, the church is no longer a commodity in this in this crisis. It actually is a necessity that there would be a movement of people that say, we'll take them, we'll take the kids. Yeah, and even just looking throughout Scripture from when God— laid down the official, you know, laws with Moses and everything all the way up till his coming and James 127. He's always made provision for his people to care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. It's always been important. And I've noticed a trend whenever um I'm going through the Bible and he's he's looking at Israel and he's like, You've turned away from me. Whenever he's talking about them turning away, he always brings up you don't hear the cry of the poor, the orphan, or the afflicted. And um, it's, it's a huge thing on his heart. And so when we're missing it, it's, it's a huge thing for us to hear his call um, because this is a major part of his heart. And like you said, you, you didn't have the heart for it, but when you saw that it was in his word to do it, you're like, okay, if I don't have the heart for it, I'm going to go do it, and I'm going to trust that the Lord is going to meet me as I go. And... I think that's a place that a lot of us, a lot of us find ourselves, especially in America. You know, uh, like for me, the American dream. You know, <laughs> have have a nice amount of money, have have a nice car, and for me, growing up, a child would hinder that. You know, and I had a a very poor perspective of the value of a child. And over the years, God has completely transformed um, how I see children and changed my perspective to His perspective. What is this causing in children emotionally and behaviorally? How is this impacting the children being taken from homes, being brought into a, a residential facility, being put into a foster home, getting moved around? Um, how is this affecting them emotionally and behaviorally? So the way God originally designed for children to develop appropriately is with a mom and with a dad who loves them, who hears their cry, who responds and meets their need, whether it's with food or with comfort or with safety. 
And so when that cycle gets disrupted and a child is crying out and there's not someone there to meet their needs, specifically in that first three years where that foundation is being laid, they get a foundation in place instead of trust for fear. And so literally on a developmental, biological level, children are wired for fear when they don't get their needs met. Children can be broken in relationships, but they can also heal in relationships. And so there is hope and those places can be healed through relationship. But the breakdown causes, um, I mean, if you want to use diagnoses, this is what the state is calling it, attachment disorders, reactive attachment disorders. Kids who are traumatized have PTSD at the same rates as war veterans. So our kids in residential facilities or in foster care because of the trauma in their early childhood literally are going through life as a war veteran, <laughs> as if they were in a nation that had war. And um, this causes triggers. It causes fear. It causes survival behaviors like lying, manipulating, stealing, controlling, because they never learned or they did learn that my words don't help me get my needs met. So violence does, or manipulation does, or triangulation does. And so that these behaviors are what they learned and what they acquired so that they could survive, um, which is hard when you're working with a child and, and they're lying to you and they're looking in your eyes, you know they're lying to you, but this is a learned survival mechanism that kept them alive through some of those years of having to bounce around and not knowing if the people that were supposed to be keeping them safe are dangerous and a threat to their safety, or they lost their voice. When they cried, no one came. And so they learned, I don't have a voice. I have to get my own needs met and I can't trust anyone outside of myself. And so working with these children can be a challenge if you don't if you're not able to recognize that these behaviors served a purpose in their past and these behaviors kept them alive. Yeah. I mean, I was even um, out of outreach today and talking with another guy who comes with me to outreach. And um, we're talking about an experience he had working with a kid and um, the kid was stealing food and hoarding it. And um, talking with one of the guys, he's like, yeah, man, he's not just stealing food because he's like, oh, I'm just going to steal food today. He's like, this kid you know, where he came from, he didn't have food. And so he's actually going into survival mode. There's food over there. He doesn't know for sure that he's going to have food in the future because of the way his history has been. And so he's taking that food and he's hoarding it because he doesn't know. He thinks he might die if he doesn't grab that food. Mm -hmm. So in, in light of these things, what are some of the things that we are doing um, as OJC to respond? So if you look at the orphan crisis, um, globally, there is 153 million orphans. Um, that if you put them together in one nation, it would be the population of Russia. And so that is a huge nation. But also there are 2.2 million Christians globally. So if you work those numbers out, what it boils down to is that 7% of the church has to actually take a child in to end the orphan crisis. And that leaves 93% of the church to do what? Because we're all still called to serve the orphan, to care for the fatherless. And so what Orphan Justice Center is essentially doing is mobilizing the church to respond, not just a sacrificial response, but in obedience to what the Lord is calling you to do, get in your place of the body to either take a child in, part of the 7%, or to serve the children who are brought into families or reach out to kids in residential facilities. So that's what Orphan Justice Center is doing. We're calling the church, arise, these are your kids, and let's serve them. Let's serve children 
Let's serve families so that the journey of restoration can be completed and the Lord can heal, deliver, and, and restore these children. And so we, um, we recently, we did a training. Um, we did the Empower to Connect training. And so we had families that were adoptive and foster uh, coming to sit and be a part of the training. How do you feel like that training impacted the families in our area? Um, because when I was there, I noticed there was a lot of emotion. And uh, being able to, to be involved after the training with, with some of the families, um, it seemed really positive and it seemed really helpful. Can you share a little bit about that training and, and how you saw it impacting the families? Yes, yeah, so the Empowered to Connect training um, is one of my favorite trainings because it trains caregivers and people who work with children from hard places how to not just respond to the behavior, but to look beyond it and respond to the need. Um, these behaviors serve a need. And so what is this child telling me when, it, when they're screaming in my face? What are you really telling me? What do you need right now? Do you need safety? Do you need food? Because they didn't learn to do it the right way. So um, having trauma-informed training empowers the caregiver and the volunteer to be able to look at that child in the face and interpret the behavior and respond not to their behavior, but to the need. And when you do that, you see transformation in lives, not just behavior modification. We want the heart. We want who that child is. We want to draw them forth in their identity and speak right directly to who they are um, despite what happened to them. And call them forth into the future that God has for them. I had one conversation with a mom who's who adopted from another nation internationally several years ago, has been walking this journey of restora restoration out for the last several years faithfully and just has hit wall after wall after wall. And so when she's hearing these stories of the the behaviors and what they actually are telling us, she really took it to heart. And one of the things she has struggled with her with her daughter is that she feels like the daughter's manipulative or constantly asking for things, constantly grabbing at her and needing things. And she's like, I know you don't need that. Like I'm giving you what you need. And so she said she had gone to the training one day and was heading out the door the next day. And the little girl looked at her and said, mommy, can I, can I have gum? Can I have gum? Can I have gum? And she looked at her and she said, no, you may not have gum. You don't need gum. And as she's walking out, something just nudged inside of her, like, give the kid a piece of gum. Meet that child. There's something in her that just wants to receive love from you. And the way she can receive it right now is by getting her need met or a perceived need met, which was just nurture. Give me a piece of gum. So her mom reached in her pocket. She only had half a piece. And she said, you know what? You can have a piece of gum. And that was a big stretch for her because normally she's used to the structure side, but it's balancing structure with nurture that actually brings a healing environment for our children. I talked to other parents who said, you know, I've been trying to understand why is my child doing the things that they're doing? And it's it's breaking down the problem and removing the emotion from it and being able to see what is going on in that child's brain. Why are they responding out of the fear center and calling them forward with real strategies, how to call them up out of their fear center, out of their survival center of their brain into that thinking part of their brain where they're able to give and receive love, where they're able to understand cause and effect and forward thinking. That's one of the things I love about the training. It's not just what well, you need to pray for your kids. Um, it's actually teaching you how to recognize what's going on in their heart, care for their physical needs, 
meet what's going on emotionally in them, and it actually opens up a door for you to minister to them about Jesus and who He is because they're seeing Him in the way that you're loving them and caring for them. They're seeing His actions through your actions. Um, is there an example you can think of uh, in your own life? Because, I mean, even even you've adopted and, and worked in the residential facilities where this training has helped you to reach a child's heart. Yes. <laughs> um, I I see it every day in my family and in our me and my daughter's relationship, how I actually kind of, not always, but sometimes have a glimpse into what's going on in her heart and have some responses that could actually help her. When I first got her, her tone was rough, is the only way I can describe it. Kids, kids, inner voice becomes that with what their caregivers were. So she actually sounded like a 43-year-old drug addict. And there'd be times I'd just say, come here, and she'd be like, what do you want? I'm like, wow, you got a lot to say. And she she just didn't know another voice. That was her voice. So it wasn't so much her rebellion and her mean-spiritedness. It was that's what she thought. That's how she thought she was supposed to respond. And so through time, my favorite tool, just a really practical tool is giving redos. Just a quick three second, uh oh, try it again and let them do it again, but the right way. Because in doing this, you're establishing a new brain pattern, almost like a new muscle memory. You're so used to responding with this tone or with this attitude. But when you practice a new way, now your brain's going to start firing that way. So for example, she could come in, I'd say, hey, Caitlin, what do you want for lunch? Give me a sandwich. And I'd say, uh-oh, try it again. And then I would have to give her the correct way to say it at the beginning. I would say, can you ask me, can I have a sandwich, please? And she would just say, can I have a sandwich, please? And it was literally just repeating after me because we're modeling to our children how to respond and how to speak to one another with love and respect. And slowly over time, I watched that tone shift and then it started to sound like mine, which could be a scary thing. Um, but you really do. You watch them pattern after you. And so giving her the try it agains, the redos really helped her to change her tone and how she asks instead of tells. And um, another example was probably nine months into fostering her. Um, we, she still wasn't permanent and it looked like the case could go either way. So it was just a hard place to hold her heart. And and there was one night that she triggered about something that reminded her of her past, and it was, it didn't have anything to do with me, but it was coming out against me. And so she was angry, and she was hurt, and she was coming at me actually like violently, and that's not typically what she would do, but she was coming after me. And the wonderful thing about this training is that it's the training and the Holy Spirit that gives us the full toolbox, full access to the toolbox. And... So I was praying, God, what do I do with this right now? Because I know that it's a trigger. I can recognize what's going on. This isn't me. This is something that happened to her. But it's coming out now in all of the emotional ferocity as if this was happening back three years ago when it actually happened. And so she was angry at me. And I felt like I was supposed to just let her get it out. Just get it out. This is a safe place. She has lived four and a half years scared. And so... She is screaming at me. She is um, physically attacking me. And I was like, well, we, we should deal with this while she's five, not 15, while she's small. And so she was, she actually, I think inside was trying to kill me out of anger. And um, 
throwing things at me and it lasted for about an hour and I'm still like oh man should I keep letting this be letting this go and I just felt like just ride the wave with it and so she got all of her anger out she picks up a ball it's her last resort she throws it at me misses me and hits everything on the nightstand knocks it all off spills the milk breaks the lamp and she um she came to me she looked at me because it startled her and she thought, oh man, like I shouldn't be doing that. And she began to weep actually, because that's not her typical response. So she's crying. And I looked at her and I said, clean this up, then come talk to me. And I walked out of the room and I waited for her in the kitchen and she comes out and she has guilt and shame and she's feeling horrible. And up to this point, I'm Amber to her. I've known her since she's a year old and she's been calling me Amber since she's known me. And she comes out to me and she looks at me and I come down eye level with her to make her feel safe. And I said, listen, I'm not going to hurt you and I'm not going to leave you. Even if you're the baddest you can be, I'm not going to hurt you and I'm not going to leave you because that speaks to their deepest pain, abandonment, rejection, and and pain and fear of being abused again. And I looked at her and said, I'm not going to do that, but you're never going to lay your hands on me again. Do you understand me? I said, in this family, we use words. We don't do hurts. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she goes, okay, mom. And she never called me Amber again. And what I can discern from that was it was that balance of structure and nurture that helped her be able to feel safe and feel like she could settle in and be a daughter and it wouldn't hurt her this time. And um, even even working in outreach, I've seen um, kids um, – get triggered or um like i one one example coming to mind there was a child uh, i'd seen god moving his heart in just such a, a great way being there week after week uh, he was such an intelligent kid i had seen behaviors that he had completely changed but he never had like violent behaviors it was kind of more like add type behaviors and you make these strange random faces at times and all that went away and um it came time where he could possibly be getting put in a foster home. And he would go to, to a regular public school. Well, during the course of the possibility of him being placed in a, a foster home, he pulled a pair of scissors on a kid at school. Mm. And so that ended his chances to go to that home. And I was sitting, I was like, man, God, you know, why, why, did, he, why did he do that, you know? And God really spoke to me. There was a time uh, when I was a kid, my parents were divorced, and it was the first time I was going to my dad's house for the summer. And God brought this memory back to mind of me getting in his car and leaving my mom's house and looking out his back window and crying. I was going somewhere I wanted to be, but I was sad. And it was kind of a scary experience at the same time, even though I was going somewhere I wanted to be because I, I was going to be such a long time that I wasn't going to see my mom. And he's like, he just spoke to me and said, this is a scary experience for him. He's leaving the only place that he's known was safe and comfortable, and he's going to a place that he doesn't know, and he doesn't know if they're going to keep him. And um, it just, God used an instant, even though I haven't been through that, I was like, man, these, these kids, they, they really go through a lot emotionally. And being able to recognize what's going on in their heart, um, being able to recognize that things trigger them. Um, but... There's kids who are in this place, they don't have very much, and they don't have very many people in their lives, and some of them don't have anyone in their life. I got to see the emotions of the kids when someone who had been there for a long time had left. And even though it's not a family, 
it becomes like a family to them. It's it's the only thing they know. So I, I saw some kids who reacted and were like, oh, I didn't like the guy anyway. He was mean. And then I saw other kids who cried. And they were the the thing that that really struck me was when I was sitting there with them, and I look at one of the kids as he reaches reaches over to talk to the kid next to him. He's like, he's like, hey man, that one staff member over there better ne- never leave. He's like, yeah, well, we're never leaving. And I just, I saw the hopelessness. Um, these kids are older, they're teenagers, and they're like, we're here until we age out. Um, these kids, what happens if they age out and they never get placed in a family? So every year in the nation, in this nation, twenty to 30,000 teenagers age out of the system. So what that means is they turn 17, 18 years old, and the governmental care that they had been living under ends. And so they just get released into adulthood. And so naturally, they some of them just don't even know how to cope with life. They've never been trained. Decisions have been made for them in institutions. It's not what do you want to eat and how do you cook it. It's what's being given at the cafeteria that day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So they have very few life skills. And I also think about myself. When I was 18, I turned 19. I still had my parents. It's not natural to just become an adult without any support and without anywhere to go for Christmas or anybody calling you for birthdays. They turn 18 and they're on their own. They're adults. And so the the reality is grim for them. Um it's been said that girls who age out of the system will be approached by a trafficker within 48 hours. And they call foster care a pipeline for trafficking because these children don't have anyone that's going to come after them. So they train the girls to call them daddies. They they prey on their very vulnerability and what they're lacking. So they come after the girls. 60 to 90% of trafficked females in this nation came out of foster care. So st- statistics show that people who age out will also likely end up on the streets, exploited, unemployed, pregnant as teenagers. A quarter will end up in jail. A quarter will end up homeless. A quarter a quarter will suffer PTSD going forward. And half won't receive their high school diploma. Compared to out of the general population, 87% will receive it. Those statistics are staggering, and it could be really easy to hear that and say, how could I possibly make a difference in one of these kids' lives? And I've had the privilege and opportunity to be a part of that 93% that you were talking about earlier, the 93% who are able to go and, and visit these kids where they're at now. And I've gotten to see firsthand the difference that showing these kids that they're valued and that you care about their future can make and impact them in their lives. One of the kids that I actually used to mentor, um, he was aging out of the system. And toward the end of him uh, being in the program, uh, he had started visiting his family a lot more and being able to uh, take bus rides out there. And in the same process of him doing that, um, a lot of things we had worked on, I'd seen start to he wrote away. We had done a lot of work with school and prepping him to to get in an internship, to work toward the the job field that he actually wanted to get involved in. And uh, there was even one time working with him that I felt like the Lord wanted me to write him a letter about who he is as a man and who God says he is as a man. And uh, that really touched him emotionally. 
Um, he even, uh, I could see him, uh, you know, holding back some of his emotions. And he just told me, he's like, man, this is really cool. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to put it on my wall. Uh, thank you so much. And so toward the end of me working with him, um, he started making some really bad decisions. He started skipping school. And uh, he actually was removed from the program because of some of the decisions that he was making. And so about six months go by, um, I we had talked through text a couple times, but we hadn't really talked on the phone um, too much. And uh, six months go by, he sends me a message. He's like, hey, man, I'm graduating. Uh, will you be able to come to my graduation? And so um, I give him a call. I talk to him on the phone. I tell him, of course, you know, I'd love to come to his graduation. I get to go to his graduation. I'm the only guy there. I'm there with his mom and his aunt and um, the the man who's involved uh, with his mom. Uh, he he didn't want to take off work to come to his graduation. And um, him inviting me to his graduation um, just spoke volumes to me uh, of how he thought of me and how I'd impact his life. And it was just such a huge victory uh, for me uh, being able to witness and be a part of his graduation. So we have these kids, they've, they've been rejected, they've been outcast. What does God say about them and their value? I love Isaiah 58, which talks about the house of prayer, the Father's house. And at the end of it, he's talking about how he's going to gather all the nations to this house of prayer where we're intimate with him, where we're talking to him as a father. And then he says, and I will gather yet others to you. I will gather the outcast. And I love that picture of the father gathering the outcast. So these are ones that have been cast out and some just come, some just come to the father's house. But the ones who have had a history of being cast out, the outcast, we have to go actually after and gather them in. And he wants them. And he says, I'll give them a name that's better than sons or daughters. And I love that picture of the father giving his own name to his children. I love um, that he calls himself a father to the fatherless. And in Psalm 68, that's what he thinks of these kids, so much that he would bind his own name, his own identity to theirs. I am their father. They are fatherless no more. And he removes that stigma from the 43% of our children and the next generation. He says, actually, this next generation won't be known as the fatherless generation. But because of this promise that I am father to the fatherless, they will be the generation that raises up and is known as the generation that was fathered by God himself. And I love that promise, father to the fatherless, and that he turns and gives beauty for ashes. That's the nature of who God is. And I love that he also binds himself to feel everything that is done to these children. That scripture, I can't remember the exact reference in Matthew, but he says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So if you do something good, I feel it. If you do something bad, I feel it. Because these children are the most vulnerable, but they have the most powerful one advocating, defending, protecting them. So... Obviously, over the years, um, God's been speaking a lot to your heart, um, and you've came a long way from that girl who is sitting in her room like, God, I don't have a heart for this, but I'm going to go do it. And you've gotten to see God fighting for these kids um, and encounter His heart for these children. How has God 
grown your revelation of who he is as a father through this ministry and, and through even being a mom? Proverbs 19.2 says, Zeal without knowledge is not good, nor is it to be hasty and miss the way. I think about who I was in my early 20s, excited to build orphanages all across the world for the kingdom. And then I look to the word, what is the Lord doing for the fatherless? What is biblical justice for the fatherless? In Psalm 68.5, he sets the lonely in families. He doesn't just want to put him in a building and and hire someone to, to shift lead and come in their shift and lead, and it's a job for them. He actually wants us to lay our life down. It's that invitation to know Him. And He's saying, "This is, is this not what it means to know me, to care for the poor? When I got a phone call, an emergency phone call two and a half years ago, that would change my life. I had no idea what was going on, except on the other line was a desperate birth mom. She called me. She said, please come pick up my daughter. And so I went out to the crime scene. I've known this family for the last five years. And I I picked up a little girl who had no idea that this was actually probably the last time she was going to see her birth mom. And I put her in my car and I said, I, I don't know, what, how did I get into this? What's going on here? And I have a four and a half year old in my backseat and we're driving away from this crime scene. The cop took my phone number on a tattered notebook, put it in his pocket and I drove away and I literally said, what now, Lord? And I had nothing. I literally had nothing. I was living with a large adoptive family in one bedroom. I didn't have a closet even in that bedroom. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. I'm not married. And I'm sitting here with a four and a half year old in my in my back seat. And then the question came a few weeks later, will you keep her? And I thought, man, it's one thing if it's temporary. But now you're asking me to keep her forever. And I just remember spending three full days in complete grief is the only way to say it. I loved her. I've known her since she was a year old, but to lay my life down for her was a whole new level of sacrifice. And is it worth it? So I remember processing with the Lord going, oh God, I have to break up with this future that I thought I was going to have. Um, I have to break up with the idea of, I thought I would be married first, or I thought I'd have more, or I'd have a house, or I'd not be so low income and really had to step out and believe and obey what the Lord said to me. So I didn't tell anybody about this. In my family, hardly any of my friends knew. I was just me and the Lord. And I was asking him, what do you have for me and what do you have for this little girl? And I remember him promising. He said, I told you I would never leave you or forsake you. And if you do this, I'll step in. And I'll cover you as a father, and I'll cover you as a husband, because this is my child. And so I said yes, and it was with great fear, because I knew the behaviors that were going to come. I've studied this for the last six years. I, I knew what was, it was literally laying my life down. But the invitation to know him as father was, the invitation to know him as father was greater than what I would be losing. So when I said yes, I entered into the last two and a half years, this mystery of when you lose your life, you find it and you find him in the laying down of your life. And the way I look at it now is that I found a pearl of great price and there is no cost to that because of who she is to the Lord and the honor that it is for me to be able to raise her in the day in, the day out, the mundane, the big days, the 
big breakthroughs and the small things. He's worthy of it. And he's worthy of me laying down my life because he laid down his. It's the same picture. Adoption is the same picture of Jesus dying on the cross for those who weren't even his own, the Gentiles. And that picture of the good news, the gospel, is the same as adoption. And we get to live it out every day in our home. The the revelation and the heart that's God that God has given you, um, just from you saying yes uh, a long time ago, sitting in a room, um, is is amazing. I love hearing your story and your passion for this ministry and for your own child. And I want to thank you for for coming on here and and sharing your heart and sharing what you do and sharing how God has been a father to you and to your little girl. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. And we so appreciate what you bring to this ministry. When I think about even your story, just a 20-year-old kid who God apprehended with the spirit of Elijah and turned your heart towards your family and your children is actually the very picture of what we're calling the church to. So we super appreciate you being a part. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to know more about Orphan Justice Center and the ministry that I'm doing, or if you'd like to partner with our ministry, you can email me at travismiles at ihopkc.org. That's travismiles at ihopkc.org. Or you can also look up Orphan Justice Center at orphanjusticecenter.com. Also, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure to subscribe so that you can join us with our next episode.